Hi, I'm Eric Law, and you're listening to the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. Hey, are you or someone you care about considering, dealing with, or being through a divorce or separation? Well, you're in the right place. You don't have to do this alone. There are people who care and want to help. Hi, I'm Dina Court, an author, blogger, publisher, and empowerment coach. Thanks for joining me on the Divorce Magazine Canada podcast. You are going to hear from our team of experts and professionals how to navigate this difficult transition in your life easier, more efficiently, and with better outcomes. Did you know we host online divorce resource groups that are free to attend and everyone is welcome? Check out the links in our show notes and be sure and join us. We love bringing experts to you. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com and stay tuned at the end for the legal language. How are potential new clients finding you? Are they just doing a random Google search and hoping for the best? Let's get you in Divorce Magazine Canada. There are multiple ways that we can get you in front of a new audience. You might not think that your business applies directly to divorce or separation. However, the statistics tell us that 50% of people are experiencing divorce or separation and they're looking for your services while dealing with this difficult transition. So let's showcase you on the podcast as a sponsor and advertiser in the magazine and in our events. I would love to feature you and there's an early bird offer right now till the end of July with last year's pricing. Contact me and find out how we can get you in front of some new eyes. Ready? Here we go. So what's up with prenups? Prenuptial agreements often have a very negative connotation around them. And we are going to talk to a family lawyer today, Eric Law, who is going to define them for us and help us understand how prenuptial agreements and cohabitation agreements can really help you and are very important. Let's meet him now. Good morning, Eric. I am thrilled to have you on the show today. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to learn more about the topics that you have noticed there is a gap in understanding around. So please let us know who you are. Tell us a bit about yourself. And then let's jump into this juicy topic. Absolutely. So my name is Eric Law, and and yes, I am a lawyer. I know I'm I'm primed for a late night TV commercial with that with that last yeah. name. I'm a I'm a lawyer at Resolve Legal Group here in Calgary. Uh, we're uh, a law firm that focuses mostly on on family law. Uh, we do some wills and estates as well. We do some corporate as well, and some mediation arbitration. Uh, I've been a lawyer for uh, nearly three years now. Uh, and I went to school here in Calgary as well. So I've, I've, I've been around for a little while now. Now you have a topic that many people are affected by and maybe a little scared to ask about or bring up because it's something that will potentially help them in the future for something they hope will never happen. But you're seeing that often relationships get to the point where there is going to be a divorce or separation and 
they do not have a prenuptial or a cohabitation agreement in place. So this is kind of like a will. It's a, it's an awkward, cringy topic, but it, it does, it, it is an important document to have. Exactly. It's, it's one that nobody wants to think about. Uh, there's also a lot of, of stigma around uh, prenuptial agreements. Uh, I, I don't know the first time I ever heard about one was certainly in a movie or a TV show somewhere. Uh, there was scoffing. There was, oh, how could you ask me for that? Do you really love me? If you're asking me for something like that, do you not trust me? Uh, all, all these questions, all, all these negative stigmas that, that come up from the popular media we consume. Uh, however, uh, it's a lot, you have a lot different perspective when you're a family lawyer and you see uh, some of the conflict that, that people get into when they're uh, divorcing or separating uh, if, they're, if, if they're not married. It's it, it, it's something that uh, can escalate quickly. Uh, it's something that can come on quickly. Uh, it's something that you never hope happens, but it happens to a lot of us. So every time that I'm in a file and I hear that the parties had a prenuptial agreement, it's it's welcome news because it's something that allows the parties to go through this divorce process or separation process fairly amicably because they already know the terms of, of what it's going to look like. It's, it's a matter of, of taking that agreement, uh, taking the terms and putting them into a new agreement, a, a separation agreement, and then either getting your divorce or, or um, waiting until your former adult interdependent partners. What do you suggest is the best time for people to discuss this obviously prenuptial before the marriage before the wedding but it's an awkward conversation and i'm assuming that it's something one of the parties is maybe more informed about than the other party and so they realize the importance and they want to you know initiate that conversation and how what timing and how would you best maybe you aren't maybe you can't coach in that that, what you would know, you... that's, a, that's a very good question, actually, and I'm going to give the very classic lawyer answer and say that it depends, but I'll, I'll tell you what it depends on. Uh, so uh, this it might help to get into uh, how the law works Perfect. On, uh, on separations and the like. Uh, you have two elements to a separation. Generally, you have uh, what's called your corollary relief if you're uh, married and, and getting divorced. Uh, so that is... Uh, things like parenting of children, uh, child support, spousal support. Uh, and then you have your property matters, which are, are governed by uh, the Family Property Act, is what it's called. And, and I should mention for people who are not married, but are together, they have children, they're adult interdependent partners, uh, that same relief, uh, parenting, child support, partner support, is all something that needs to be considered uh, when contemplating a separation. Uh, so on the, on the property side of things, uh, what people might not know, and this is where there's a gap, it's, it's been the law for a while now. It's been the law since 2020 uh, when the Matrimonial Property Act became the Family Property Act. But essentially, non-married couples who are adult interdependent partners in Alberta share property like married couples 
have for a, a very long time. And what is interesting about that is uh, to become an adult independent partner, there's, there's, uh, there's essentially three grounds on which you're an adult independent partner with somebody. You've been living together in a relationship of interdependence for three years. Uh, you've been living together in a relationship of interdependence, and then you have a child together, uh, or you sign an adult interdependent partnership agreement. A lot of people go that three-year route. They move in together with their significant other. They, um, at the risk of getting long-winded here, they then are together for three years. They're adult interdependent partners, but any property they've accumulated in those three years is retroactive back to when they moved in together. So my recommendation to answer your question, which was when should people kind of have this conversation? It should be had when you're moving in together generally is what I'd recommend. Uh, because that's from that date, if you reach that three year mark or have a child together, you're sharing property right from that, that moment. Right, because of the retroactive factor of it, it, it is important to understand that that is when it will be considered legal. Precisely. And thanks for defining the adult interdependent, interdependent partnership as well, because I think there is a difference between provinces. Some is one year, even without a child, and, and some is three, from my understanding. Yes, yeah, so Alberta, this is a bit of a fun fact, but my understanding is that Alberta has never actually had uh, what is common known as common law uh, marriage. Um, it was never actually defined in our, our common law is my understanding. So <clears throat> we had the Adult Interdependent Partnership Act come in in the early 2000s. And that is what defines people who are colloquially known as, as a common law couple. Interesting that it's that recent. I hadn't realized that. Yeah, and and you know, at, at the risk of going off on a tangent, it's got a bit of a uh, less than um, savory history. That law uh, that was do brought, tell, do tell. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> again, a bit of a tangent, but <clears throat> that law was brought in uh, by the Alberta government at the time, led by Ralph Klein, um, in response to the gay marriage debate. Uh, you'll Interesting. People yes. may remember that uh, the gay marriage debate here in Alberta. There was there was a lot of uh, conservative voices saying, uh, "Why not just have a civil union?" And and that was that was the answer to a to a civil union that that Alberta brought in. So that's that's the history of that one. So a little uh, again, you look back and you think, I mean, same sex marriage is such a no brainer, uh, but back then it was a, a bit of a hot button issue. So. That's where that act came But from. look what we have to thank them for. Absolutely. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Now, one question that came up, and you may address this later as mm -hmm. we delve into some of the questions that I have, but revisions. Oh, uh, a revision to a... Uh, to an, a, to an agreement. agreement. Yes. Prenuptial agreement. <clears throat> that can be done. Uh, it's called a postnuptial agreement. Or if you were, again, not married, but in a relationship of interdependence, it would just be a, uh, another cohabitation agreement that you'd sign. Uh, you certainly can do that. Um, from a legal perspective, you, it, it might not be beneficial for one party to do that, right? That's, that's where 
things like these agreements can get a little bit contentious, right? Is that is that if you're already in the relationship, if you're already sharing property, if you're already doing those things, uh, then you uh, unfortunately kind of have a decision to make if you if you um, uh, want to change any terms of those agreements. And it, it depends. It really depends on your relationship. Some people are good at at separating the business-like elements of a relationship from the uh, of an affection and, and relationship parts. Um, some sometimes they're very intertwined and, and oftentimes they're very intertwined. So, uh, but they can be revised. You basically just do a new agree agreement with a, with a revised um, uh, clause in there. Some, and this is actually probably a good, again, a bit of a tangent, but a good, a good one to build off of is that some clauses <clears throat> can be unconscionable. Uh, so, for instance, if you uh, say in your in your prenuptial agreement that uh, my retirement assets now and any value they gain in the future, such as like a pension or a, or the like, uh, will never be divided. Well, now you're in a marriage for 20 years and you built this life together and all of a sudden you're separating and there's this prenup from 20 years ago that says retirement assets won't be divided there's the potential the court might see that and say, well, that's unconscionable. You've, your lives have changed so much. So sometimes people limit those clauses. So if we've been together for 10 years, we, that we now share all retirement assets or, or, or the like, or it says that um, after 10 years time, the parties will renegotiate these clauses, something to that effect. You can also kind of specifically say that we know our lives may change. However, we want this clause to exist for the duration of our relationship for no, sorry, for the duration of our relationship, no matter how long it lasts. So uh, there's plenty of options that you can. That's interesting that you can write in allowances for, you know, changes. I'm just thinking of some examples off the top of my head they may have had discussions and agreed, yeah, we never want a family, but then maybe that changes. And now they hadn't written anything in about childcare in the initial agreement and, and may need to revise it that way, or uh, their lives change uh, the assets that they gain and hadn't anticipated. Absolutely. Now, what would the key differences be between the two agreements? If, if there's any, between, sorry, between a prenuptial agreement and yes. a cohabitation agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is just being with respect to whether there's a marriage or not. So uh, if you're married, uh, there's certain things. I mentioned the corollary relief uh, earlier. That's parenting, child support, spouse support. Those things are all covered under the Divorce Act, which is a federal law if you are married. Um, People are also who are married are also subject to the Family Law Act, but people who are not married are also subject to the Family Law Act in Alberta. That's a that's a provincial uh, legislation, uh, which covers elements of parenting, child support, and spouse support. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with how the agreement deals with the various acts. Like the the two acts have different clauses, have different wordings. Um, and there's certain clauses in both that, that are, that are mandatory. You have to talk about certain ones versus not in, 
in your agreements or in order to get like a like a final judgment from the court of uh, and the like so for instance the divorce act the, the new version of the divorce act has mobility clauses in it uh, that says you have to give certain notice periods um, to the other parents if you're planning on moving a significant distance away from them with the child uh, those things need to be contemplated in a divorce judgment so they need to be it's advisable that they be con contemplated in your uh prenuptial agreement what's interesting. great though is that uh, a cohabit if you have a cohabitation agreement that you have with your partner it's good when you're living together you decide to get married later oftentimes uh, at least myself i'll draft them as such that they form two agreements that in the event that they get married it still applies to their marriage like it's it's both a cohabitation agreement and a prenuptial agreement if the parties choose to marry oh interesting mm -hmm. and again that is a revision that could could have have changed after a number of years of cohabitation and then decide to to legit you know legitimize Absolutely. it with the whole passion uh concept of, an, of a marriage not that it wasn't legitimate before um, what are some of the essential elements what would you say are the basics like what you've mentioned so the property the mm -hmm. child care spousal support those are those would be your essentials right well so uh, not necessarily actually okay so oftentimes as i said earlier the the best time to talk have this conversation is before you move in with your partner there's there's lots of people that prior to getting married these days they will live with their partner for an extended period of time um and and that could go three years it could go one year before they get married but it, you never know usually when people are moving in together uh it's rare that they have children uh, at least in my experience it's it's anecdotal, but I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people that do have children that then move in together. But but uh, oftentimes when people are contemplating cohabitation agreements, all they really care about is the property they have, right? Because they don't have children. They don't have to worry about child support. They may make around the same amount of money, so they might not be thinking about spouse support either. Um, and it's also hard to know with, and, and actually, let me back up here. So spousal support is one of those areas that make the, the pop culture demonization of prenups and, and, and cohabitation agreements come true a little bit. Um, it tends to be a bit of a contentious issue because that's when you're starting to um, get into issues of, is that person being too greedy? Are they, is, is this other person asking for too much? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, there's also things you can't really contemplate, like you can't really necessarily turn your mind to with spousal support because that's so intricately linked to the status of a family. So if you get together, you don't have any children, you have fairly equal incomes and careers, but then you get married, one party stays home with the kids, say the other person keeps advancing their career, but you have this spousal support waiver uh in your agreement um that you might end up that you get no spousal support despite the fact that after separation 
the person who was staying at home with the kids has the kids, has no income, or has very little job prospects and, and has no support. So there's lots of times where uh, cohabitation agreements will only deal with property and, and won't deal with some of that corollary relief. Right. And then they, that would, that discussion would come up. Those arrangements and agreements would be drawn up at the time that that relationship ends. They, they could, that being said, you know, there's, I've, I've also had clients that do have concerns about eventual spouse support, right? They're entering into a relationship. They are already the significant income earner and, and they want to protect themselves from a uh, indefinite spouse support award uh, or a very high spouse support award or a fight over spouse support. So for instance, you can limit in, in your agreement, you can limit spouse support to say um, in the event there's an entitlement for spouse support uh, under the law, uh, the recipient will receive no more than um, X level in the uh, spouse support advisory guidelines for a for no more than half the length of the relationship, regardless of how long the relationship is. That's something you can certainly do. That's still conscionable. The the court would still look at that and say, well, that's that's reasonable. It's still along the lines of what we contemplate at law. Um, and people are free to make whatever, generally free to make the agreements that they want to, right? So now on the finances, mm-hmm. um, what role would you say that full financial disclosure disclosure sorry plays in the creation of these agreements because it's a again that's an issue that's not easy mm-hmm. so a few months ago i would have had a very very straight answer forward answer for you <laughs> historically uh, the law has been such that if you do not exchange full financial disclosure prior to signing one of these agreements that can be a wedge later where um, one party can open up the agreement to scrutiny by the courts if they don't like some of the terms, right? They, they can feel like they're getting a raw deal and they can say, well, I didn't actually get the financial disclosure, so I didn't know what I was really signing properly and my lawyer wasn't able to give me proper advice because they didn't get all that disclosure. So. I always encourage clients to get full financial disclosure in the past. Now, there has been some uh, recent Supreme Court, a recent Supreme Court case, I, I don't have the name off the top of my head, unfortunately, that seems to suggest that full financial disclosure now has not necessarily been um, necessary for an agreement on corollary relief to stand up. And, and that's that's news to us because that's been uh, the, the law has been been different uh, previously, and so there's it's a bit now of a up in the air um, uh, concept. However, uh, there is uh, one part of uh, the law that still requires um, at least some financial disclosure or at least a, a waiver of it, and that's the uh, my understanding is the the Family Property Act still requires you to. Um, disclose some some income information myself what i tell people is that is just better safe than sorry is to do a full financial disclosure that's your last three years of tax returns notices of assessment last three pay stubs if you own a corporation your your 
corporate financial documents, uh, balance loss sheets, um, uh, those sorts of documents, uh, as well as even your last six months of bank accounts, last six months of credit cards, uh, last six months of, of uh, investment um, uh, information. So if you have RSPs, stocks, that sort of stuff. It, it, it seems a lot, it seems daunting, but it's going to do the best to protect both parties from that agreement being opened up by the court in the future. And where where do exemptions fit into this and, and mm-hmm. those financial disclosures? Because people are mm-hmm. usually, uh, you know, they've had a bit of a life before mm-hmm. they've come exactly. together in a relationship. So the exemptions are often why people seek these agreements in the first place. Uh, they have made a decent life for themselves. They, they have property uh, that, you know, they're going to inevitably commingle, but at the same time, they worked hard for it. it it's something that they want to protect in, in the event that, uh, that the unmanageable, sorry, unimaginable happens. Uh, so the good news is the law itself, the Family Property Act, uh, a lot of people are surprised to know uh, protect a lot of these exemptions uh, in in certain cases. So, for instance, an exemption uh, would be such that if, if you owned a, if you owned a home prior to entering the relationship, and your significant other moved into that home with you, once your adult and independent partners, it becomes your family home. That's where you live. That's the quote unquote homestead. Um, however. Uh, the value of that home at the start of the relationship uh, is exempt generally uh, for for people. And then uh, going forward, any increase in value is is then shared. That's that's what's that's how exemptions generally work. In this case, where I'm talking about a family home, there's a little bit of a a different situation that happens. Generally speaking, if if you've taken an, an exempt asset. And then you've commingled it. Like it's become your family home. Upon separation, you're generally entitled to half the value of that asset as exempt, as an exempt, uh, sorry, an exemption. And then you divide the other half as though it's family property. Right. Uh, so those, those kind of exceptions and the like on exemptions are why people seek out uh separation agreements because or a separation or sorry cohabitation agreements or prenups is because you have this asset you're the one that worked for it you don't necessarily think that it's fair to divide any of it the value pre-relationship uh as family property so you mm-hmm. say notwithstanding the act this is what how we want to divide that property later on some people think that uh well this is a piece of property that i bought that i worked hard for um and it's an appreciating asset i I think that any increase in value uh should also be mine to retain uh that strays from the law a little bit further but it's still something that you can agree on as long as the parties have independent legal advice on on their agreements and potentially there could be loss of value it could and Uh, uh, could could you speak to that and to debt allocation yes okay so um uh, loss of value uh, on a piece of exempt property 
bit of a tougher question. My, my, uh, off, off the top of my head, my understanding is that, uh, if you, and, and so this is where I, where I put a little disclaimer in that this is legal information, not legal advice. So, um, take, take what I'm saying, obviously with a grain of salt, consult your own lawyers, uh, all the lawyerly things I have to say. Um, if you have it, so a house is a bad example. Say, say you have an R, like an RRSP uh, that you've brought into the marriage or the relationship. And it's, it's obviously exempt because it was from before the relationship. And then any increase in value is, is shared according to the law. If that asset is something tragic happens to the stock market and, and that RRSP is worth less than when it came into the, the relationship, uh, the amount that's left over is is still exempt without there having to be any uh, any any sharing is 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 my understanding. Um, as far as debt goes, debt allocation that's that's kind of a whole other whole other beast. Um, so the a little bit about the Family Property Act is that it it assumes that all property is divisible, and then it makes exceptions after the fact. Um, debt is not the same. Uh, debt is not part of the Family Property Act. Uh, it's not something that is uh, presumed divisible. Uh, that's because, I mean, well, I can only speculate why the public policy reasons are for that, but it but it makes sense. The debts can be racked up by one party uh, and without the other party having control over it. So generally speaking, if a, if a debt um, serves the family in any way and that's a fairly loose interpretation like if if somebody buys a car with with the family's credit uh that's arguably a family debt because the car is becomes then a family asset uh if the debt is related to a family business uh, of some kind that's that family business was in service of supporting the family so that would likely be a, a, um, a family debt. Uh, however, things like, um, I mean, I mean, I, the, the classic example is if, if there's an addiction issue, if, right. if, if some gambling, an alcoholic or a gambler, uh, racks up all these gambling debts or, or alcohol debts, the, those aren't, those aren't really, uh, well, an argument could be made that, that that's not, debt that's serving the family. This is where things like a separation, a cohabitation agreement or a prenuptial agreement can come in handy because some parties might want to structure their lives such that any debt that either takes out in their own name is, uh, or without consultation from the other or written agreement from the other uh, is theirs upon separation. So that, that can keep, um, uh, parties honest and, and can and can make it so that uh, either party doesn't get saddled with a with a large surprise debt in in the event of relationship breakdown. That is an interesting component, and that can mm -hmm. be written right into an agreement. Right in absolutely that consideration. Mm -hmm. And and I mean that that also takes you also have to practice those clauses as well, right? Like if if uh, if you're going to have a clause that uh, says each party keeps their own debts, then 
then it follows logically that one would um, make sure any debts they take out are in their own name, not in a joint name or, or, or that sort of thing. Right. And, and maybe keep some track of that as well. That too. Yeah. Interesting. So it can be a, a little bit of a roadmap for the relationship as well. Yeah, it sure can. That's a great way to describe it. And it would be, I mean, that puts a bit, a little bit of positive, more of a positive spin well, well, if, you're well, having exactly. that, if you're having that conversation. <laughs> it's like, exactly. you know, honey, we need a roadmap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I told myself I wouldn't say this, but it's too good. Um, oftentimes, and, and people, when I tell them this, they, they look at me with, with a bit of a, a hairy eyeball, but, but as family lawyers, we, we consider a prenup or a, a cohabitation agreement is the gift of love <laughs> because uh, when you're, when you start moving in together, when you're, when you're about to get married, I mean, you, it, it's, it's, it's unlikely you're ever going to love each other more than, than that, yep. than in that moment. And, and, and be that, that uh, amicable and on the same page. Right. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's giving your future selves um, uh, a gift in, in the, in the event that the unthinkable happens and, and, and that relationship doesn't last. So, I mean, we always, we always hope it does, we always knock on wood, right. But it's, but things happen. What I'm assuming from this as well is that there is a far lower conflict uh, element to a breakup when there's been this, these agreements in place, it, it does help to keep some of that conflict well out to some to some degree that, that's exactly it so if if i'm being candid uh the most conflict i ever see on a file is always usually in relation to um children or support unfortunately uh those those are the issues that that um they they blow up they 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 can get uh, I, i've seen them get ugly there's you know and that being said i mean there's lots of people out there who never see lawyers in their lives and are able to figure these things out very amicably, right? But there's but there's people who aren't uh, as well. And so what when those issues blow up, oftentimes I I I've I've seen it such that uh property issues kind of fall by the wayside, uh, or it causes roadblocks in settling property. Uh, and and this way, if you have a prenuptial agreement or a cohabitation agreement, that can essentially kick in. Uh, it, it can kick in and, and the division of the property will happen according to that agreement. And then, then the rest, that, that takes something off the plate in the event that, that there's conflict. I like that because I'm hearing that conflict resolution, learning to communicate with each other is really the, some of the bigger challenges when, Absolutely. when these separations happen. And so if you could mitigate that somewhat, it, it's, I think that's definitely part of that gift of love that, yes. uh, that can happen sooner. Now I have a couple more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the common challenges or issues that arise when you're attempting to enforce these agreements? Are there, are there maybe a, 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 a certain topic or a certain, not topic, a certain uh, element of their assets that people 
forget to include or you know there's things that weren't mm -hmm. addressed initially and now oh this is Mm -hmm. now going to be an issue or a challenge so so again the benefit of these is that they're they're quite straightforward right as as long as they're drafted well so uh enforcing them uh i mean generally speaking these agreements have a fairly punitive um uh, indemnity clauses or or cost consequences if one party has to go to court and, and enforce it. So oftentimes that's that's the benefit of having one of these is that there, there aren't as many challenges in enforcing them due to, as, as long as they're drafted properly, that give the parties proper incentive to put it into action the minute that it, that it happens. Uh, I haven't personally experienced um, much difficulty in, in enforcing a cohabitation agreement or a prenuptial agreement. Uh, that being said, it's it's likely because I'm a bit uh, uh, early in my practice. So, so I'm, I'm nearly three years at bar. Uh, that's a decent amount of time. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've certainly seen some stuff, but, but there's other things that I haven't yet. And that's, that's, that's one of them. Um, I can imagine some that, that might be problematic. Um, so you have a agreement uh but uh someone is one party is you know doesn't like it and so they start uh, dissipating assets uh so they've they start either destroying the property or or selling it out from under you or or something like that uh, i mean the good news is is that uh arguably you could you could uh bring an action in line with the agreement saying that this is what we agreed upon. The, the party destroyed that property, right? Um, works for something where the primary value is monetary. Maybe not so much if it's a priceless uh, like family heirloom or mm-hmm. something like that. that. That's a problem I could I could anticipate uh, in that regard. Um, sometimes property, another thing to, to contemplate when you're drafting these agreements or when you're getting one done is that uh, if you say you have a, um, trying to think of a hypothetical here, not a house that you live in, but a condo. So say one, one party has a condo, they move out of it in with the other person, their condo becomes a rental, uh, and, and the like, well, say the parties want to buy a bigger house and, uh, they sell the condo uh but then they buy the bigger house uh but then they and and so they put the money from the bigger house sort of the condo into the bigger house and you know a a good cohabitation agreement would say even any any um funds received from selling one of these assets and then donated to the family uh, property uh, is such that uh, it remains the person's whose it was before, but then you sell that house and you and you buy a bigger house and then and then you or or you buy two right like or like you yeah you sell that house and you buy a smaller house and a vacation home it, it gets a little convoluted it's a little harder to trace that stuff so um, it's it's always a good idea to. Uh, well, this this crossing over to into how, how do I say this? Um, 
in order to claim one's exemptions in property, whether it's contractual or by law, you need to be able to prove it mm -hmm. uh, with tracing documents, evidence, that sort of thing. So as property becomes more convoluted and, and commingled, uh, it becomes a little harder to um, figure out where the agreement applies and, and where it doesn't. But and, and so and so that's where the roadmap probably comes in, right? Is that is that your agreement is only as good as you as you as you drew up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think one thing just specific to that example mm -hmm. that keeps things less complicated is the original value. So when that condo was sold, if you've got proof of what that monetary value was, mm -hmm. any any increase to that value automatically was to be divisible unless it's written otherwise in the agreement. So, so it keeps it simple. If you can keep that, keep that paper trail yeah. now. And, how and, that's, and, and just to interrupt you real quick. That's, yes, go ahead. Uh, that's my job as a lawyer. And those are lawyers jobs, right? Is to kind of think about every eventuality for clients and pose it to them and see if they want that to be part of their, part of their agreement. Right. Yeah. Right. They might, they may just want to, Put it all together and not worry yeah. about another good example i thought about real quick yes. go ahead it probably ahead. is even a little more clear so say that you have that condo and you and you buy a a, a bigger one to buy a bigger house you don't need to put the value of the condo into the bigger house but there's a renovation of the house needs so one party goes oh just use use the sale proceeds from your condo and we'll we'll do this renovation well now actually what you've done is you've dissipated your exemption so because it's it's you can't say oh well I put this much into the house so I'm taking it out no you spent that money on contractors and and renovations that aren't exactly um, uh, tangible in the same way as putting it against a mortgage right okay mm -hmm. that's very good that's very good information information exactly. yes information and yes. we do have a we do have a disclaimer uh, very right. similar to what the you have here. Now, how do people get one of these agreements? Are there, you know, like with wills, there's a holographic option. This needs to be a legal document and they do need to seek legal advice from, from a lawyer such as yourself, correct? Yes. And also this can be used. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that the separation or divorce is going to court. This can be used in a mediation process to Absolutely. drop a separation agreement, uh, any process like that. So please tell us about the process of, of getting an agreement. So it's uh, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, you would uh, book a consult with somebody like me or or your lawyer of choice, and uh, you'd tell them what you're looking for. Uh, your lawyer would likely ask you some clarifying questions uh, they'd send you uh, the disclosure uh, checklist and, and forms that you need to exchange proper financial disclosure. Uh, your lawyer will draft it for you. Uh, your lawyer will um, then give you independent legal advice on the agreement and help you find, ideally help you find a lawyer for your partner to get independent legal advice on. Uh, the independent legal advice part is, is very important. Uh, the independent legal advice part is something that is most definitely required by the Family Property Act. Uh, it, it needs to be um, signed off uh, with a lawyer in, in order to be 
my generally speaking to, to be valid. Um, so that is, that's very important when you have, when you have property, uh, that you're, that you're looking to protect or, or to, uh, allocate, uh, with a cohabitation or, interesting separation agreement so so it's important to have independent legal advice and 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 that's where that's where sometimes uh these agreements can fall off the rails uh it's it's the job of a lawyer to tell you every which way that that this agreement is good for you and every which way that it's bad for you um and so people might have been okay with that until they heard from their own independent lawyer that hmm, maybe that actually isn't something I want. Uh, so this actually is, is a point that I really wanted to make uh, and there's a good segue into it. It's best to stick to the law as close as possible with these agreements. Um, I mean, again, you hear in pop culture like these, these cohabitation agreements or prenups that completely screw one party and it's all to the benefit of, of somebody that's greedy in the relationship. No, not necessarily, right? And, and actually lawyer, most lawyers recommend that you stick as close to the law as possible. The closer you stick to the law, uh, the less likely a, a court is going to find your agreement unconscionable. Uh, so, so and, and the less likely that a other, uh, another lawyer reviewing it will find it unconscionable or, or one-sided. So uh, it's important to um to consider that when you're thinking about prenuptial agreements little changes like like well instead of dividing any gain in value on this condo i mean i'm the one that bought it it's an appreciating asset i kind of want to protect that for myself potentially potentially reasonable right i mean if uh if that came to me i'd i'd i would tell my client what they're what they're entitled to um but not also not something I would refuse to sign either due to it being being so one-sided. So 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 the the closer you are to the Family Property Act uh, and the Divorce Act and the Family Law Act, if you're doing one of these agreements, uh, the more likely it is that it's going to get signed by both parties and 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 stand up. So if you're that close, I mean, I'm just devil's advocate here. If you're that mm-hmm. close to those family laws, mm-hmm. then, those already protect you to to a degree so so that is that is uh even if your agreement is exactly as the law is um it still prevents the fight right it's it still prevents uh a long drawn out fight process people taking unreasonable positions uh that sort of thing right it's like no we agree to this this is how it's going. This is how it should be, and it's very easily enforceable uh, by by taking it to court and using it as evidence that this was the agreement that we that we signed. So it takes it, it in a way. It adds the contract law element of it, where where you now have something that's enforceable, mm-hmm. as opposed to jostling and 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 having to spend um, trying to understand the interpretation. Or the interpretation of the law. It's like, no, we agreed that this is what we both interpret and we agree to sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Now this, if if you pay, if you pay somebody like, like, like a lawyer up front, uh, a little bit relatively to do your agreement, you're likely saving a lot on the, on the back end. If there is 
in the event that there is a separation, uh, God forbid, um, and uh, in the event that it ends up being a contentious plan. Right. Mm -hmm. So that kind of answered, I think, my last question was, can one party initiate, you know, exploring doing this? And if it is done with independent lawyers, then I guess that that could be the case that, you know, one person comes and starts and speaks to their lawyer mm -hmm. and gets some information because we're hearing there's a lot of, a lot of elements to consider and we don't want to find later, whoops, missed a couple of very important ones. So we do need guidance on this. Exactly. And, and there's, and there's just, there's essentially, that's why it helps. Even if, even if you don't, ultimately end up with one right there's mm -hmm. there are people that and perfectly reasonably so don't like the idea of having one right i mean it's it's and and that's something i totally acknowledge even even though i called it the gift of love earlier um there, there's some people that just don't like the idea of having one it's not for nefarious reasons it's just that it's it's not part of their value system and mm -hmm. and there's not there, there truly is nothing wrong with that uh that being said um uh, that doesn't stop one party from talking to a lawyer and and understanding their options and and what can happen, uh, how that might affect um, them going forward, right? Because there's there's people that's that uh, that there's there's a lot of people that likely don't think about a lot of these things mm -hmm. uh, when they're starting a relationship and, 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 you know, right, rightfully so it's, it's generally a happy time for most people moving in together. Yes. It's generally a happy time getting engaged and, and, and getting married. So, so the business end of it, if you will, how, how you manage finances, how you, how you um, think about property, right. How you, what, what your career goals are, what your earning potential is, that sort of stuff. It's, it's things that a lot of people don't necessarily think about. So, uh, it, it helps to understand your rights and and what you might face in the event of of tragedy. Um, to and 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 that's the, that's the hard thing being a family lawyer sometimes is that uh, I I always wonder if I'm if I'm uh, treating relationships with enough respect <laughs> and 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 the like and I, I I think I do but you know it's it's hard when you see the 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 tragic end of it so often mm -hmm. um, to not to not think about contingency plans and and uh making sure everybody's on the same page just some preparation now eric are there any resources available to people where they can find kind of a basic checklist or things mm -hmm. that they want to consider mm -hmm. <clears throat> not off the top of my head okay. unfortunately that's that's the and and something that i don't necessarily agree with, but but is the case is that uh, there's still a little bit of mysticism around the law sometimes, and, and mm -hmm. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure sure that's protected my job and industry for a very long time. <laughs> but uh, but um, definitely looking at the Family Property Act is something that is arguably written to be at least understandable, so okay. that when you read it, you you know kind of what your rights and are or not. Um, I might be able to get back to you with, with a, with a checklist uh, mm -hmm. of some kind just to make sure that, that I'm not violating any kind of. Yes, no, absolutely. Or, if... or, or, or the like, but, uh, but I could, I could see what kind of resources I can find or throw together for, for our next meeting. Yes. And it's something that we could also offer 
on the Divorce Magazine Canada website for people to have a place to go and read, maybe have as a downloadable checklist that they can use. And it would be beneficial to opening those conversations. You know, here, here's some things we might want to consider that, you know, protect ourselves and just understand what an agreement is and make that decision. Do we want one? We don't want one. Mm-hmm. And at, at what point is it best to, to consider starting mm-hmm. one? And, and you've been a, an incredible resource today, Eric. I Great. so appreciate what you've brought for information that will help with those gaps and yeah. uh, just yeah. help people feel more comfortable with those conversations, more informed and, and to consider giving this gift of love yes, yeah, <laughs> to, exactly. to yeah. their significant so, other. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to mention before, before yes, please. I've been, I was looking for maybe a natural moment yes. to bring it up. I, I think I missed it because you mentioned mediation earlier. Uh, alternative dispute resolution in, in family law is ultimately important. It, it's, it's endlessly, endlessly useful to people to get out of the the court system and and i'm a big believer in that uh things like mediation mediation arbitration um uh even settlement meetings with with lawyers and clients uh i the way i see cohabitation agreements and and prenuptial agreements uh, even postnuptial agreements if people want to sign it after they've been married or or the like um they go hand in hand i think they go hand in hand with the alternative dispute resolution process it's it's uh, the the more you can stay out of court, uh, arguably the happier your life will be. Uh, even even if you're experiencing something as as tragic as the end of a relationship. So, thank you for that final thought. I think that's uh, just a beautiful place to end it on the positive note that mm-hmm. and encouraging people to seek alternative dispute resolution. And there are uh, a lot of mediators. Um, and organizations who train mediators. There's an Institute of Alberta that uh, is also uh, in our magazine, and we've had guests that address that as well. And so conflict resolution and alternate dispute resolution, very important to helping keep the drama and and the uh, (laughs) uh, negativity out of these unfortunate events. Precisely. Thank you so much for being a guest. We look Good forward to having you back again. And the uh, is mine. thanks for having me. We'll chat again soon. Sounds good. See you. Hopefully you heard something today that helps you wherever you might be in life. Do you have questions or a suggestion for a topic you want to know more about? Let me know. Check the show notes for all the contact information. Follow this podcast and find us on social. Know anyone who might find this information helpful? Be a friend and share it. And hey, thank you for hanging out with me today. Keep smiling that beautiful smile. The world needs your sunshine. It means a lot that you spend this time with us and meet our experts and professionals who can help you through divorce or separation. Please refer to our terms of service available on our website, divorcemagazinecanada.com. The link is in the show notes. Our disclaimer, divorce resource groups, blog, and all content, including our podcast, is intended to educate and provide quality, credible resource information. The contents should not be used as factual until consultation with the appropriate professionals for any guidance. 
Divorce Magazine Canada does not constitute endorsements for nor liability for any claims made in the presenting of this information.